Warning, the episode you are about to listen to most likely contains graphic language, details of violence and murder, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Murder With My Mother, episode five already. I can't believe it's been five episodes. Doesn't feel like it's been that long, but I guess it has. Five weeks. I feel like it's been five weeks. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. Well, all the research and the hard work that's gone into this. It is a lot, yeah, but I love every minute of it, and it's super cool. It's cool to see all the background stories and all the background info that you can find when you really dig into a person. I really like the fact that you kind of have an idea about a case, but you don't know the details. And when you find out the details, they're even more astonishing than you thought they were in the first place. Yeah, I also really love when you haven't heard about a case and you hear about this case. And it's like like today's case, actually, it happened right where I grew up and it didn't happen in my era, but it happened in yours. Yes, ma'am. It's the first time I can ever vividly remember being afraid of a boogeyman, really. Oh, see, and that's what I mean. Is like I I pride myself on knowing all the, you know, the big names and the the more heinous killers. I think that's what kind of draws the story and draws you in and, you know, the people that are the most twisted. It's like trying to understand what's going on in their mind. That's what, you know, I'm super interested in and the funny thing is with this one even though i lived it at the time and it was something i was really afraid of as a child i did not know all of the details and the extent to which the sickness ranged and the horrificness of the crimes until i did the research for this case yeah and growing up in this area i had no idea that this this even happened and so many addresses when we're looking it's like oh my goodness i didn't know that you know camping at one of these places or just walking by the river it's so serene and it's so you know now after doing the research you really see things that have happened in the dark history that a lot of places have it's super crazy especially when you're from there it's super trippy so we live in surrey bc which a lot of these cases that we're about to talk about today because today we are covering a serial killer And a lot of the murders happened right where we live. Trippy. And again, like I said, I had no idea the extent. I'd heard the name Clifford Olson. You know, I'd heard that. But it's like nobody, everyone was so afraid that not a lot of people talked about it. Well, and you have to think too, back then, uh, the whole true crime, talking about stuff, I mean, things were a lot less censored in ways of the way we behaved and stuff like that. But people didn't really talk about gory details of things. There wasn't social media. There wasn't so many true crime shows. It was basically just little whispers of stuff. And as you'll hear today, um, the media even didn't report a lot of it. The police didn't really understand the inner workings. Um, this case is actually mind blowing and it's going to be pretty hard to listen to. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Clifford Olson, but I'm pretty sure a lot of you will learn a lot in 
today's episode and the episode next week as this will be a two-part episode. So I remember uh, I was, the year was 1981 and there was a ramp up on Stranger Danger and people telling us as kids, I was around seven or eight years old. I think I'd actually just turned seven when it all began. Um, it was being spoken of a lot about stranger danger. Don't get into people's cars. Don't talk to strangers. Don't accept candy from strangers. Don't. That's the best because every story you tell me about your teenage years, you're like, yeah, we were hitchhiking here. We were hitchhiking yes, so, there. So you it have was prevalent. To. Like you ever, kids are everywhere. Totally. And back in those days, kids had freedom. It was a lot different than it is now. I mean, I walked to the bus stop, which was probably a good three blocks to go to kindergarten. And I was four years old when I started kindergarten. So that just tells you how different things were back then. We stayed home alone. Uh, we had a house key. We just went home after school, stayed home alone, probably from kindergarten. Yeah, we just ran free. And that was majority of families, I think. There was no, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if your parents just were a little more lax. But from what I take from that time, that was the norm. That was no one locked their doors. Everybody was out doing whatever out till all hours of the night. And that's maybe why you hear, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, there were a lot of serial killers that got away with a lot of stuff because people were so naive to the fact that people were out there committing mass murders just for their own pleasure, right? It's, yeah. it's crazy. It was crazy because when you think about it, like you think now, I mean, your son is eight years old and you don't let him do anything by himself. No, he doesn't go anywhere, which I feel bad. I mean, the other day is the first time he played with the neighborhood kids and I walked over there and then I stalked him obsessively and went over there every 15 minutes. And I don't know if that's because of, for, because I, you know, have, always watch things that put visions in my head and all that stuff that's you know obviously I'm going to be on top of you know you hear your kid goes to the park and you look away for one second like okay well just don't look away ever and you'll be able to hopefully stay on top of that ever happening or anyone ever being able to you know the stranger danger yeah like I push that we from the day he could talk you know we're talking about you know private parts and you're giving them actual names instead of calling them names that can be used against them where if someone sexually assaulted them or like secret questions exactly, i know when you yeah. guys were little you had quite a bit of freedom also but there was secret questions or what would you do if someone came up to you and said hey come and help me look for my puppy or oh yeah whatever so it was it was definitely becoming more prevalent to be more aware more aware of where your kids were once the 80s were over because before that we I think I only came in the house to eat dinner and that was it, mm -hmm. ever. When the lights came on. Yeah, like, when the street lights came yeah, on. Yeah, my mom would whistle off the balcony <laughs> and then I would just I would just run home. All my friends would be like, Janika, your mom's your mom's whistling for you. So I've got a killer whistle, even the dog listens. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the Kingston whistle. <clears throat> but yes, he killed for what, like eight months? It was an eight month spree. Yeah, it was pretty fast. I mean that's if they know all of his victims, which I think he was quite a bragger, so he probably would have said if he had more, but it was pretty quick and furious and it was terrible. And it reached 
everyone. I know our teachers at school were talking about it. Um, yeah, I mean, and that was probably near the end once everyone put two and two together. That, that there actually was a serial killer, yeah. Because I don't know if it was just really prevalent for teens to run away back then, but a lot of these, a lot of the, the kids that come up missing, they are assumed that they're runaways, which for me is crazy because if you, you hear a lot of cases about this in this time frame, in this era of, yeah. you know, the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, it was like, oh, well, they must have run away because really what else, where <laughs> else know, did they go? You know, what's funny though, is that, I mean, it's not really funny, but I did run away a couple times. Yeah. And we always planned whenever we were mad at our parents, let's run away. And then, I mean, not for days at a time or anything, mm. but I remember one time running away and I went down to the arcade and ran away until my dad came down and got me and I got a spanking. But so it was pretty prevalent <laughs> yeah. for kids to run away yeah, then, I that guess. Was like, because we didn't have any other recourse, I guess, and we were all little assholes from doing whatever we wanted all the yeah. time. It was like, my I want to live with my dad, I guess. But yeah. I would always pull that card and it was like, then go! And then I would be like, sorry for it in five seconds. Change my mind. Yeah, so... That's not an option ever. <laughs> As I said, it was the first time I remember being afraid at night when we would have to go to bed or when we were walking to school or the one where your parents leave you in the car for what seems for like hours, hours at to a go time. to the pub or something. Or, yeah, <laughs> and just be like, hey, well, we're oh, going the here. 80s. And I remember at that point we would hide on the floor of the car because we'd be so scared that the killer would come and get us. So, yeah, up until then, it was pretty much just fearless abyss. We didn't really care about anything. Yeah. It all started because I remember our teacher talking to, a, to us about the killer that was in the Lower Mainland. And I was in grade two at the time. And a boy in our class apparently had gone to Surrey to visit his cousin. And the supposed killer, which who knows who it was, because I think there was quite a few pedophiles also operating around that time, uh, came up to them when they were on their bikes and asked them if they would like to go to, for fries and gravy. Hmm. And they thought about it. Who doesn't love fries and gravy? But they didn't go. And then they told their parents and their parents were obviously horrified because there was a killer operating in the area. So... It all actually began the year before that in November of 1980 in Surrey, uh, right at the cross streets of King George Highway. And anyone that knows this area is going to be astonished. So it was King George Highway and Fraser Highway 96 area. So there used to be a bar, a hotel actually called the Surrey Inn. And there is a bunch of little scuzzy motels around the area, which there are still some of them. And there was a little girl named Christine Weller who was 12 years old and her parents had split. Her dad was living with Christine and her grandma at the Bonanza Motel on King George Highway, which I Googled and I believe it's still there. That is still there because yeah. that is one name you don't forget when you drive down King George yeah. to Bonanza. And it's like the type that people maybe with, a substance abuse problem or whatever we'll live at for a cheap rent. Yes. 
So they were living there and Christine was not happy about it. Her dad had promised her that they would get an apartment soon, but she was very vocal about not being happy. About not living in Surrey, right? Yeah. A lot of people hate on living in Surrey. They just, it's, well, I mean, if you move away from your friends, especially when you're that age. Exactly. You know, that's the end of the world. And so she was walking with her dad. Her dad was walking and she was riding her bike, which her dad had never seen before. And he asked her, where'd you get that bike? And she said her friend had given it to her. So he said, okay, well, I'm just going to go into the Syrian and have a beer and um, meet you back at home. Be careful. Christine was last seen uh, that night at around 10 p.m. by a security guard that worked in the Surrey village, uh, which is a complex that is still in Surrey. And he had seen Christine in a car with a man who he recognized from around the complex. So she, the night that she went missing was November 17th, but because she had a history of running away and her, her dad knew and her grandma knew that she was not happy living where she was, they kind of waited a couple days and they figured she just went to sleep at a friend's house and cool down or whatever. I'm sure it was odd because I don't think there was any kind of blowout, but just given her history, I'm sure that's where your mind's going to go first rather than jump to the worst conclusion. And so they didn't report her missing until the 19th, which was two days later. And lots of tips came in, but nothing that cops really took seriously. Christine was a tomboy and she was pretty tiny. Um, pretty friendly and a little bit on the shy side. And so it was kind of weird that she'd be hanging out with a strange man at nighttime, but the police never really looked into that part of it. They just basically said she'd run away because she had run away before. But one month later, a little more than a month later on Christmas Day, there was a man walking his dog near the Fraser River and West Westminster Highway. So he thought that he saw a mannequin. You always hear that too. Yeah. And you're watching Forensic Files or you're watching Dayline and someone's walking their dog or yeah. somebody's, it's always that, right? And taking it back to the Farrah Khan case when she thought that they were doing something totally different. It's like you, you don't go there first because that's no. not where your brain is going to go. Oh, they must be murdering or that must be a dead body. I mean, my, my brain does go there when I see on the side of the road. I'm like, there's probably something horrible in that in garbage bag. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So. And, and what scares me is, as you know, I have a big dog and I walk <laughs> him every single day after work in rural areas and I said to my dog last night because he was the only one at home with me <laughs> you better never find a dead body Walter yeah so Christine unfortunately was not a mannequin it was the body of Christine and she had been stabbed repeatedly sexually assaulted and she had a belt around her neck that had strangled her yeah, she was found completely nude and a ring that she was wearing and one of her cross necklace that she was wearing at the time of her disappearance was missing. I don't know what really happened after that with the case. They didn't really put out any kind of APB or they weren't looking actively and for That's anyone. the thing about this case in particular is the police work on this case is a little bit shifty. I'm just going to say that right out of the woodworks because you know, no blame because I'm not blaming anybody, but the way that these cases were not investigated or as they, how they should have been, they were not presented. Just the fact that it was 
oh, you know, we haven't gotten to the second victim, but there's a pattern and you will see it's kind of like denial is not just a river in Egypt kind of thing. Like they are clearly, they're oblivious. And it's, it's super frustrating to research that and to see that that's... Well, and the fact that many of these crimes happened in the exact same neighborhood. Yeah, or not even because one of them, even Coquitlam, Surrey, like if you today, and I'm sure the population is much bigger today it is yeah but even if that was happening we would it would we even without social media without anything like that word of mouth about children missing and being found murdered and mutilated that is gonna yeah that should be connected especially that's not a regular thing and i know again in the 70s and the 80s maybe it was kind of a regular thing it wasn't a regular thing in the 70s and 80s i think we all did a lot of a lot of stuff and nothing happened. I mean, I'm sure a lot more people got molested and stuff like that, as far as I can tell. But uh, but that's almost because of awareness. Yeah. Right? Nowadays, people are trying to be more hands-on, more aware, teaching their kids awareness, well, screens exactly. of danger, all and, that. And people are teaching their kids to actually be outspoken about stuff like that. I mean, right from the time they can talk. Whereas that wasn't the case in the past. It wasn't. It was just kind of. A lot of families' dirty little secrets that went on if Uncle So and So was molesting the kids or yeah, whatever. it was like uh, keep that like keep it hush hush and yeah. don't don't speak about it and then that causes generational trauma. We've totally. talked about that before, yeah. right? Anything like that is going to cause you lifelong issues when you're not addressing that, and especially if you're family, like yeah. So that brings us. There was quite a gap after that, so. On April the 16th, 1981, 13-year-old Colleen Dagnall was waiting for a bus. She had gone to stay overnight at a friend's house in North Delta, which is an area just north of Surrey. And she was taking a bus back to her grandma's house. She was living with her grandma because her parents had recently split. And she went missing. She never made it on the bus. We don't know exactly where she went missing, but she was missing all of a sudden. She never arrived at her destination, and then no no, no one heard from her. And she had no history of running away or any kind of behavior like that. By all accounts, she was a pretty shy, quiet girl. Yeah. And then it was only, it was about a week later, April 21st, 1981, that... Darren Johnsrud was here visiting his parents or his mom. His mom had just gotten married. And he was here from Saskatchewan staying with her in Coquitlam, I think, right? Was it Yeah, in he Coquitlam? was in, in Coquitlam near the Burnaby, Coquitlam border. The uh, Burquitlam? Burquitlam, Burquitlam. Yeah. yeah, and so he came here from Saskatchewan and he was here for two days at this time. And he came here because I know in the summer after he finished school, he was planning on moving there with his mom and his new stepdad. So he was just there for two days and he left to go get cigarettes at 1130 that morning on April 21st. And he was never heard from and never seen again until May 2nd, they found his body. His body was found quite far away in DeRoche, which is... um, It's by Mission, right? Yeah, it's by Mission, which is a suburb... It's not a suburb of Vancouver, but it is uh, in still in the Lower Mainland. In the valley. In the valley, yeah. And he was found in a wooded area by two men, guess what, walking their dogs. 
Um, You're doomed. Yeah, I know. Totally. Good thing Quesadilla doesn't like to go for walks. Exactly. I have an old small dog, so I'm good. So the coroner said that Darren had been bludgeoned to death by a hammer to the head. And he was also sexually assaulted and naked. No one put the two cases together because of the variance of the victims. Well, that never happens. That's very rare. This is a clearly, you can see it's an opportunistic. He has just, the person that's doing these is just sick. They just want to do something that's sick and that's twisted to someone. Yeah, and they don't have a kid. type. No, the, the type is kid, vulnerable, opportunity. There you go. Yeah, and Darren was quite small. He was... Uh, he was 16, oh, right? He so was 16, but he, he was, was small for a 16-year-old. and yeah. 90 pounds. Yeah, which is... So he was pretty tiny. But back in the 70s, we never went... Or in the 80s, we never went inside and ate anything. So we played outside <laughs> Just all played and played. No, we were and all a lot skinnier than yeah. we are now. So on Tuesday, May the 19th, 16-year-old Sandra... Wolfsteiner, who lived with her sister in Langley. She planned to go meet her boyfriend at his work and bring him lunch or go out for lunch. I'm not sure. Um, but she stopped first and met his mom for yes. lunch or something, right? Yeah. Um, she stopped and had a coffee with his mom. And Sandra was known to hitchhike when transit wasn't convenient for her. So like a lot of us, I hitchhiked right up until probably the 90s. So people would just hitchhike. Like you couldn't find a bus. You didn't feel like waiting for a bus or whatever. You they just must not have had those no hitchhiking signs all <laughs> over the place like they well, do now. Well, that's why they have them, probably. Yeah, because, because we, everyone was getting murdered. Yeah, talk about opportunistic killers, like, dream. Yeah. No kidding. Oh, my goodness. So she... Her, didn't his mom... His mom actually saw... Because she was going up a bit to Fraser Highway. Yeah, think, so right? she was on Fraser Highway visiting... Uh, her boyfriend's mom. Yeah, and then and then she, she saw him get. Yeah. yeah, she saw her get in a silver car with a man. With a man. Yeah, but then she never showed up to have lunch with her boyfriend. And he was upset because she didn't show up. She yeah, thought she was late. Then no. he talked to his mom, and his mom said, "Well, that's strange. She was here. She until, met me. Yeah. yeah what would you mean? You're not going to meet your mom, your boyfriend's mom, and then ghost him right after. And exactly. especially, it's not like she had a cell phone where." She could call or let him know. So he probably thought, like, what the heck? So he was really worried, and, and they reported, I think her family must have reported her um, as missing. But the police suspected that it was him, that he had something to do with it. Yeah, they suspected her boyfriend. They actually gave him, brought him in and gave him a polygraph mm -hmm. test. But there was a friend of hers that saw her that afternoon at the RBC Bank. She was closing her bank account and taking all the money she had out of it, and she told her friend, Guess what? I got a new job cleaning carpets for thirteen bucks an hour, and I get to drive a Trans Am. Which thirteen dollars an hour at that time? Oh my god! Yes, it was a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, because even when I started my first job, I think it was six seventy five was minimum wage, and six seventy five that was in what two thousand six. Uh, yeah, I remember I made 10 bucks an hour working in forestry and it was probably 1988 and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm making 10 bucks an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> so oh my cute. God. Yeah. And I was working my ass off in forestry, but the 10 bucks an hour, I would have done anything for. Yeah. So $13 an hour and you get to drive a cool car around. A Trans Am. Yeah. yeah. 
I would have definitely. Gone. I kept. I'm like, yeah, try on Zara. Oh, <laughs> no, I think I know. That's one with like the eagle or like the hawk or something on the hood. Uh, yeah. That's the okay. One. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm picturing <laughs> my hillbilly dream. Yeah. You should have a mullet when you're driving. Yeah. Your that would have also probably been what happened. Yeah. With exactly. <laughs> was it, it was what was in? It was root. It was Newton. Yep. Yeah. They gave her boyfriend a polygraph test, which he passed, and. She was never heard from again either. That brings us to June 21st, which is not that long. That was about a month, what, a month and two days after Sandra went missing. A girl named Ada Court was babysitting for her sister-in-law. And after that, she was walking. She was supposed to go meet her boyfriend. And she was walking from the bus. And basically, same thing. She vanished and she was never seen again. And she had left from... Uh, Coquitlam, which was the same area that Darren went missing. Mm -hmm. The police began to kind of look at that because there was two kids missing from the same area. They never linked it with all the other kids, but they went looking and the building that she was uh, babysitting at, her brother and sister-in-law's townhouse complex, the police found out after they looked into it the caretaker at that building had a son named Clifford Olson that was very, very well known to police. So this guy had been, he had been collecting charges since he was 17. He had over a hundred charges when they looked at him. So it's like, that's like a red, you know, like a neon, like a highlighter, like, hello, hello, look at me. I'm killing and raping kids. Well, and his, his crimes ranged the whole gamut from, everything on there yeah Yeah. and and a lot of it was sexual assault Mm -hmm. yep violent sexual assault assault he had like uh, escape in custody he escaped custody seven times yeah Yeah. i read that i was like oh my goodness and i mean okay when you hear him speak and obviously even okay he was obviously kind of a cunning and had could probably head away with words clearly but he does not sound like the brightest bulb in the box if you hear him speak he's not he sounds just really dumb well it's really like honestly honestly a lot of us not us but a lot of people were a lot differently mannered and spoken in that time so i know it's hard for you to understand that but yeah no he's just like like if you listen to people like relatives maybe in small towns and stuff like that it's it's really different yeah so and i don't think his education really went that far no because he he was was skipping school by the age of 10 so i mean yes that's kind of the crucial years of building your repertoire of what you know in your life well if it's petty crime then you're going to master that by the time you by the time he by the time he gets caught for all of this stuff it's 24 years that he's been in and out of jail he's been out of jail for as a total of four years in his whole adult life by the time he's by the time he's arrested yeah so that's pretty crazy and he spent a lot of time working at places where a hustle was what he practiced like he worked at raced a couple different racetracks mm-hmm. and fast like fast money yeah and stuff yeah. where he could bilk people out of their money he was caught uh passing bad checks he was caught doing a lot of stuff like that at one point he one of the jails was closing down and it was a historic jail that he had actually spent a lot of time at and he was so stupid, I guess, that he went to take a tour for old time's sake 
And one of the guards that was giving a tour recognized him from being in custody, but he had a warrant out. So he was arrested right then and there while taking a jail tour. See, you kind of got to love that some of them are so stupid, though, because then they volunteer themselves up for for being caught. So it's like, good job for being such a dumbass. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I I mean, if you look back at his crimes, a lot of stuff he did was so brazen that it's actually miraculous that he wasn't caught so much sooner. Like that must have been so heartbreaking for the families that lost children because he could have been apprehended much, much earlier if there was just some some seriousness taken from the fact that children were going missing at this alarming rate of speed and no one was even putting it together. I can't, I just can't understand it. Yeah, no. And he didn't stop and he didn't slow down. Uh, on July 2nd, 1981, Simon Partington, who was his by far the youngest victim because he's nine, he was riding his bike in Surrey down 95th Avenue. So actually we should say too that he lived like right by 32nd Street and 96th Avenue. I am there every single day. So just looking at that now. She just goes there and hangs out. (laughs) No, but looking at that now is like, whoa, I had no idea. When I first heard of Clifford Olson, I thought it was basically he did a bunch of crimes like BC or Canada wide. I didn't realize it was so concentrated in areas that I'm so familiar with. Yeah, that was the biggest shock for me researching this, that everything was literally right i knew i could picture and it made it so much more real for me that i could picture myself and like oh my god that's right by here or that's you you can pinpoint in your head i've been there like this is where a a child was last seen and i've been a child that was you know could have been last seen somewhere around here it's like if that same killer had been operating just it was just the convenience of a different time yeah Exactly. But the same place. And that's what brings you so much. You connect to it. It's super weird. So Simon, as Danica was saying, was the youngest. Uh, and he, yeah, so he was reported missing right away because let, let's be real. If you have a 16 year old, okay, they might you give it a couple, you know, a couple hours, a couple, even a day, day or two, because they could be out at their friend's house. A nine year old? Nah, a nine year old, you know, something is wrong. My child did not come home. He's nine. It doesn't matter if it's the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. If a nine-year-old is not coming home, there's something that's wrong. And that is uh, the first time that a lot of people got involved in the search. And police were frantic. Parents were frantic. There was around 200 people searching the area. This was also, though, Christine Weller went missing right by here as well. Yeah. So that was another ding, 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 ding to the, for the police. Well, and actually, Sandra went missing right around the same area also. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was a ding, ding, ding. I mean, it should have been, yeah. I mean, because clearly not, they, I don't know if they were, all of them were hearing impaired for ding, 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 dings, because it takes a lot of, of killing for them to pay attention and to put pieces together, which is very sad and I completely feel for all these victims' families, especially the last couple of children that are murdered because it's very... Well, as you'll hear, yeah, yeah. it was pretty apparent something was awry and no one was looking into it. So the media and the public began to kind of have a murmur after Simon was missing and they began to finally wonder if there was a serial killer on the loose. 
So it was only the day after Simon went missing that two 16-year-old girls, Sandra and Rose, were at the Lowheat Arcade, which was really popular for there to be arcades in malls. And they were... <laughs> I love your confusion at that. Like, <laughs> the arcade was the shit, man. You go there and... Well, no, no. Hey, we had Palladium. Remember? Yeah, but it? it was like... It yeah, was but as I got different. older, it was like the only people that hung out in arcades were like thugs and gangsters. And it was like, if we went there after a certain time, I was like, don't look anyone in the eyes. My, people could that. smoke in arcades. Like, people could pocket, smoke everywhere. My Even pocket like, got set on fire by someone <laughs> bumping into me with a cigarette. Remember in, in uh, our doctor's office, there's still ashtrays in the elevator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you could smoke at the doctor's office. I yes. Guess. So, so yeah, everything I guess I sound like I guess like I guess you could do that I guess in this time because I sound confused. It was, you know what? That, it sounds like a fun time to be alive. Not it lie. actually was my favorite time ever. The eighties was super fucking awesome. It sounds yeah. like it was. Yeah, the nineties was was super fun too. So the best is that you only grew up a decade before me because you're <laughs> five <laughs> minutes older to me and gave birth to me. Well, because um, I was a bad eighties kid. I know. Yeah, there you go. My dad had nothing to do with that. <laughs> so, like we were saying, the next day, these two girls were at the arcade, hanging out at the arcade in the 80s, and this guy came up to them and, and offered both of them a job. He was like, hey, I have a really good job for you guys, you make a lot of money, and I'll come back and I'll meet you here in three days, we'll meet here, and you guys can start working. So, perfect. They were like, yeah. Okay. And then, and then he For took sure. them. He took them out to the car and said, "Like, oh, here's a let's beer. have let's a beer. Let's have let's a beer celebrate. to celebrate your new job." And which it's funny that as a 16 year old, because I feel like as a 16 year old myself too. You would have had a beer with Yeah, for guy. sure. That's what I mean. You would have been like, yeah, this guy is cool. You don't see... Same with like um, guys that want to date girls when they're 16 and 15. Yeah. In high school, you think like, oh my God, I'm so mature. They love me. I'm, yeah. You know, but in real life now, as you're older, I'm like, oh my God, they're pre they're predators. They're, yes, they're, they, they are. are. Seriously, they're like singling people out because they're full-grown adults and they're dating... A 15-year-old is not an adult. 15-year-old is... Like, not even fully developed. We had a guy at our school who was 20, but he was in grade 12, so clearly he had a couple of issues. And he used to target the grade eights every single year. He well, would... even when I was in grade eight, the grade 12s were, yeah. you know, and even for me but to this think guy was about 20. that. I know, yeah, that that's extra. Creepy. And he'd ask, he'd ask each and every one of us, you want to go for coffee? We always would go, like, and then well, the yeah, next because year. Well, yeah, because it's a cool yeah. thing. I remember being in the eighth grade and being like, Oh, oh my, my god, god. Yeah. these boys are paying attention to me and they're like older and then and yeah the rest is history so yeah anyway <laughs> anyway don't pay attention to boys psa so that day uh on the 6th he met them again and they he picked them up but he said to them which is the good old ruse as a 16 year old I you're very that naive one quite a few times actually. yeah as uh, hey i know i promised both you guys work but there's only work for one of you now so i can only take one of you so he actually took them for coffee first and said it when they were in a different town and then drove the one girl all the way back to lohi mall and because he chose sandra to go be the one that he had work for and went and dropped rose back off at the arcade and i think sandra felt a little iffy about it but she still went with him anyway because she's gonna make some good money well and that's at 16 that's all you're just dollar signs you don't see yeah. like the huge and beer like, and beer yeah no that's gonna probably give me some more beer and i'm gonna make some money and i can buy those new 
fancy ass jeans because that's what the jeans are called. Or a lot of hairspray to do my hair. <laughs> but yeah, you ignore that intuition that you have when you're 16 because everyone has it. You always have that that gut feeling of like, oh, this is probably not a good idea. But again, all that other stuff clouds clouds that when you're 16 yeah, and you're instant seen. gratification. Exactly, issues. exactly. So then he drove back to uh, apartment building in Coquitlam, which we know was probably his own mm-hmm. place where he was living, and picked up a bottle of whiskey, which he proceeded to share with Sandra as they drove to Surrey. Did they? They got a different car too. Right? Uh, that was once they got to Surrey. Okay. Then he traded his silver car for a green car and the silver car kind of kept coming up if you noticed uh, yeah he he had he has uh, been, been seen in a silver car quite a few times but he obviously had some sort of deal because he would stop at this dealership where they would rent out cars and it was proven later sidebar that he had used many many different cars in the commissions of his crimes like he was smart enough in that way but he would change cars often but he did it this time with the girl in the car so he changed into a green car and then they drove to an area that was right near Guilford Mall in Surrey. Once again, back in Surrey. That's my hood, 152. And he pulled over uh, to a secluded area and said, this is where the job is. And there was nothing even there. Her alarms in her head were like, like panic, instant panic, like the creepiest guy. Yeah. And he's this ruse and now it's pretty suspicious. Like, okay, at first he came up to me and my friend and then he kind of singled me out like that you know everything's probably adding up in her head like run 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 and it's weird because he was forcing her at this point to drink more drink more drink more she was feeling sick she didn't want to drink more and he was drinking with her but he was getting more and more angry and rude the yeah. more he drank his real side was coming. He was exposing his real self yeah. as he drank more and more. So when they got to this uh, secluded area, he jumped in the back seat with her and proceeded to attempt to sexually assault her. But she went apeshit, basically freaked out. Good for her. Screamed, fought for her life. And he looked at her and said, you're, you're fired. fired. <laughs> Which is probably in hindsight, the best word she's ever heard in her life. Yeah. That's and, what it's like, oh my god. And then he drove her back to the arcade at Lowheed Mall and... Said, get out. Get out. Let her He was mad car. at her. Yeah. And so then she, because she was probably in shock and disbelief that, that just happened, plus she was emotional drunk. and she was drunk, so she flagged down a cop that she saw and she said, like, that man just tried to rape me. And they put out an instant bolo, like, to be on the lookout for yeah. his car. And then they actually got in a chase with him. They, they, they yeah, they, they chased him. They found him, yeah, just one street up on yeah. Cameron Avenue. Mm-hmm. Stopped him. And guess who it was? Cliffy. It was Clifford Olsen. Yeah, good old Cliffy. And they... They interrogated him, him yeah. right? Yeah, and he just kind of denied. He said she was a willing participant. She's just drunk. Yeah, so he just blamed it on her. Which she was obviously drunk because he had been feeding her and forcing her to drink the alcohol. So to the police and to the... They didn't want to even press charges because it wasn't a good... The Crown's like, no, that's not going to be a reliable witness. Yeah, there's not any witness. There's nothing. You have no hard evidence to go on. This girl was just a drunken teenager. 
So instead, they just uh, gave him a drinking a, and driving charge, a DUI, yeah. which in the seventies and eighties, I think, was like a like. I don't, don't think it was a big that. deal because they let him drive away from the scene. <laughs> it's not like they, not like now, where they suspend your license on the spot. Back then, it was okay. Well, here's your drinking and driving charge, and see you later. Here are your keys. Be also, safe. Yeah. be safe on the way home. Don't molest any more girls and. I hope you're not as drunk as you were five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. The police are just getting, like, more and more gold stars. So this actually was in the same district also as the police that discovered that um, Clifford Olson was the caretaker's son in the Ada case and that he could possibly be also related to the Darren case. So this was all in Coquitlam. Mm-hmm. And still, they were just starting to kind of figure out now that, yeah, something's up. So they were thinking about maybe doing a little bit of surveillance on him. But as to this point, they hadn't really made a decision or had a meeting about it yet. That brings us to the day of July 9th in 1981. 14-year-old Judy Cosma was last seen leaving a phone booth and was offered a ride by someone that must have been familiar to her because she was seen waving and running up to the car to have a conversation and then getting into the car with two people this time. So it was two men, uh, an older man and a younger man. And so she was seen getting in the car and then she wasn't seen again. So apparently when we hear back from, uh, I think Clifford himself, he says that he would often drive around with another teen male just because it made it way easier to pick other kids up so yeah and you hear that's actually a common ruse ruse to use which the serial killers because it's like okay why not trust this person or even you know it takes us to gary ridgeway of showing but not trying to show pictures of his kid when he's you know picking up a sex worker to make them feel safe but really he's doing that on purpose so that they they have that safety bubble that they feel like okay no this guy's a, a dad or this guy's a you know, a good guy, he would, he, I'm safe. Instantly yeah. you let your guard down. Mm. So Judy was going to a job interview um, at McDonald's or Wendy's. She worked at McDonald's yeah, she worked she at was Mc- on the up going to Wendy's. So the, she, they kept, they kept giving her also booze, beer, here, have a beer, celebrate. We could give you a different job or I could give you a different job where you'll make a lot more money. You don't even need to go to that job interview. But she was insistent that she wanted to go to her job interview. So the three of them were driving around. And at one point he gave her a little blue pill and she became super woozy. The other male that was in the car remembered because he was later a witness that She was getting super woozy, but she was still worried she wasn't going to make her interview on time. So they dropped off the other boy that was in the car, and Judy was missing after that. And Clifford Olson told the young young man that he had dropped Judy off at her job interview, and that's the last that he had ever seen her. And I guess this guy just took Clifford's word. Well, that's what we did in the 80s. Yeah. It's all gullible. Yeah, it's a great time to be alive back then. So on July 15th, because this was affecting like all of the lower mainland, the valley, they were starting to obviously piece together that this was all connected. These were all being done by the same person. And now they had this name Clifford Olson on their radar more so. So police from everywhere they had in... so. On one side of the bridge, we have the RCMP, where 
there's all the detachments, but the other side, they have their own, like there was the Vancouver Police Department, their private, the private police departments, New West Police Department, Delta PD, all the yeah. RCMP, everybody, they had their special, it was special units, like every single person got together to basically talk about um, their, Surveilling. they were in, uh, announced, they announced that they were, they had a suspect in mind, but they didn't announce anything that Clifford was on their list at all because they wanted to have their way of be able to surveil him and and kind of watch him without him really being aware that this was happening. And that's, I guess, when they also announced that there was an actual serial killer operating. Yeah, they got together and they compared all their notes. Yeah. And that's the same conclusion that everybody even, came to. Even though most of the crimes happened in only two different districts. Yeah. So. Then the Burnaby RCMP took it on that they were going to start surveilling Clifford Olson. So they took it upon themselves. But when they were trying to find him, they couldn't locate him anywhere. So it came up because they went to their parents' house on kind of a... They didn't really tell him, obviously. They didn't tell the parents who they were and why exactly they were looking for Clifford. But they came up and they asked where Clifford was. And they said that he was out of the, out of the country taking his brand new son and brand new wife to Knott's Berry Farm. Because, ironically enough, Clifford Olson had just gotten married to his wife, Joan, and they had a young baby before they got married. So he actually, the timing of it was terrible. So he got married on May 15th and he killed Sandra Wolfsteiner on May 19th. So four days after his beautiful nuptials, he was in the mood for some killing. Well, and actually another thing came out later that uh, when his wife, Joan, had her bachelorette party, she got Clifford to watch six kids while her and all of her friends went and had some drinks or a bachelorette get-together or a wedding shower or whatever it was. And he molested one of those kids. Perfect. And Just what you want when you leave your fucking kids with someone for, to go for a nice bachelorette party. And the mom went to the police. And reported it and nothing was done about it. That seems like a trend because yes. it seems like nothing was done a lot of the time. Yeah, and it came also came out, uh, there were a lot of reports uh, that he had been witnessed uh, sexually assaulting a kid in the sauna at his church that year also, which I don't know what kind of church. It was the People's Church in Surrey has a sauna, but uh, that happened. I don't know what kind of place has a... Uh, a sauna that someone can go in to molest boys and nobody says anything when they see that that's happening. Well, the church is another matter. Actually. Yeah, that's a whole different ball game there. So it was coming out more and more, all of the different things that Clifford Olson had done and was convicted of. And now he was the suspect in a bunch of different child abductions and murders throughout the Lower Mainland. So I think we're going to wrap up the first. Yeah, I think that's a good spot to leave it for this one. Yeah. And then we will jump into fucked up because they could have, because they knew who he was and he wasn't even done killing yet. And he got away with all, what, four more, four more murders since they knew who he was. At this point, he's at number seven where we leave it and there's four more to come. You know, we'll go over the next four victims and then we will talk about kind of something that haunts, I think, the legislation of maybe our whole country. Yeah. Because the way that this was dealt with, you'll see next week that it was kind of a, I mean, I say miscarriage of justice, but this one was... I think we'd just never seen anything like this no. before and it was definitely precedent setting for sure. 
and to say the least. Had to be so, so, so terrible on the families of the young victim whose lives Clifford Olson took. Yes. So another note is because this one will be a two-parter, we will release the next one next week. But after that, we, we will be releasing every second Thursday. So we will have two episodes a month or, I mean, if you catch us on a long month, you'll get three or yeah. yeah, perfect. Yeah, so we will start doing that. Like we said earlier in the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of work and research that goes into these cases. And like I said, I love every minute of it, but we do also have other things going on. And I love spending time with my mom and this has been super awesome, but I am also a mom myself. And when we started doing this, we didn't exactly know how much was going into it, but we do love every minute of it. And we are super excited to bring you guys maybe more in-depth episodes where we can you know take our time and really research because we didn't really realize how much there is to know about every killer and you you know we should have known because victims yeah we actually have been burning the candle at both ends doing the research because we promised to get an episode once a week and i think it would just be a lot less pressure and a little more suspenseful for you guys, which who doesn't love a good suspenseful week if we release every second week. So we hope you guys will still tune in and listen. And we will be back next week with the conclusion to our episode. And this episode we've decided to call The Beast in Plain Sight because Clifford Olson was referred to and he is referred to as the Beast of BC. He named himself that actually. Yes, which we will get to in the next episode. But... He's in plain sight and come back next week so we can wrap this episode up and you can be just as incredulous as we were. Yeah, exactly. So come back next week to listen to me talk murder with your mother. With my mother. With my mother from another Milano. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. Bye.